and welcome to In the Pit, a Yale School of Architecture Paprika podcast. You are listening to a live mini-series entitled Lost Rituals Storytelling. This podcast aims to elevate the power of storytelling and pedagogy, a practice often forgotten in Western scholarship. We're your hosts, Sosa Ayervor. And I'm Sydney Mobir. Glad to have you back. And thank you to our audience for joining us today. We will leave around 10 minutes afterwards for questions, so please stay tuned and feel free to contribute. This is episode two, past, present. Walter Hood, Justin Garrett Moore, and Josh Green are here to discuss how individual stories serve as a proxies for space. We're so grateful to the three of you for taking the time out to have this conversation. And though many of these topics have seen the light in other guises, we're hoping to talk about identity, memory, and landscape at the convergence of space. Though these trailblazers need no introduction with reputations far preceding them, we will briefly introduce our guests. First, we have Walter Hood. Walter Hood is the creative director and founder of Hood Design Studio in Oakland, California. Hood Design Studio is a social art and design practice founded in 1992. The practice strengthens endemic patterns and practices, those ecological and cultural, contemporary and historic, and those that remain unseen and unrecognized. Urban spaces and their objects act as public sculpture, creating new apertures through which to see the emergent beauty, strangeness, and idiosyncrasies around us. He is also a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, lectures on professional and theoretical projects nationally and internationally. He is a recipient of the 2017 Academy of Arts and Letters Architecture Award, the 2019 Knight Public Spaces Fellowship, the 2019 MacArthur Fellowship, the 2019 Dorothy and Lillian Gish Prize, and the 2021 recipient of the Architectural League's President's Medal Award, where we actually met him for the first time <laughs> this summer. Um, and Justin, I have the pleasure of being your TA, but I'm going to introduce you anyway. <laughs> um, a native of Indianapolis, Justin Garrett Moore is an urban designer and the executive director of the New York City Public um, Design Commission. He has extensive experience in urban design and city planning, um, from large-scale urban systems, policies, and projects to grassroots and community-focused planning, um, design, and arts initiatives. At the Public Design Commission, his work is focused on prioritizing the quality and excellence of the public realm and fostering accessibility, diversity, and inclusion in the city's public buildings, spaces, and art. Um, Justin is a former senior urban designer for the New York City Department of City Planning, where for over a decade he was responsible for conducting complex urban design plans and studies of the physical de design and utilization of sites. And um, most importantly, he emphasizes his duty to the public as a public servant. So. And <clears throat> lastly, we have our close friend and colleague, Josh Green. Born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona, he studied architecture at Arizona State University, which laid a foundation of utilizing local materials and imprinted the importance of designing for social impact. In 2017, Josh joined Mass Design Group in Kigali, Rwanda as a Global Health Corps Fellow and later joined as a designer. For three years, he and his teammates designed and built an agricultural university in the eastern province of Rwanda. 
with the mission of training the next generation of leaders in conservation agriculture. He had recently returned to the United States in order to pursue his graduate studies at Yale University School of Architecture, where he focuses on the intersection between architecture, environmental stewardship, and racial justice. He is a design justice advocate, Switzer Fellow, and co-coordinator of Yale Notebooks. Thank you, Chuck. Thanks, Susan. Great to be with you all. So now that we've read your extensive resumes <laughs> and bios, we want to ask Justin, Walter, and Josh, who are you, what are your stories, and how do you define yourself? I guess I can jump in. Um, so it, it's an interesting kind of framing and, and question. Um, how you define yourself and, and through um, my story. And I would say that I have sort of layers of, of story, uh, some that are my own, some that are from my family, some that are from my community, uh, and from really uh, sort of collectives and multiple communities that I'm a part of. Um, you know, there's, I think for a long time in the design, uh, and urbanism fields, especially this sort of narrative of uh, kind of the author, the heroic figure, kind of a, a singular point of view and, and framing. Uh, and I would say that my own kind of way of navigating the world, sort of experiencing um, uh, places and practices has always been multiple in some form. Uh, and, you know, I, I think my story is sort of a, a combination of stories. So one uh, is that I'm, uh, I would say I'm a kind of a child of the inner city. They used to just call it the inner city back in the day. Um, uh, predominantly black community. And so, you know, you, you start kind of with your family and kind of your very local community is your world. And, and that world is sort of where I started to... Um, uh, collect stories from family members, from friends, from uh, having my own memories and experiences. Uh, for me personally, the places were always such an important part of the story. Like I was, was just always very aware of my surroundings and environment, um, kind of watching people, watching interactions. And there's um, um, an, an indigenous um, uh, saying that a place is a story happening many times. Uh, and this is uh, from the Pacific Northwest, the, uh, what were the Kwakawaka people. And uh, instead of having place names the way we have place names, a place name is a story, right? So like, um, you know, the, the seal bays there, right, is, is the name of the place because there are these sort of experiences that people recorded. And so the, the place became um, known through its stories. And so I, I sort of have like the inverse of that in, in a way places are sort of these containers of stories and experiences. Uh, and so growing up, um, you know, I would sort of experience the differences in places and recognizing um, their different stories. And I think it, it has shaped so much of uh, my thinking, my practice, sort of how I navigate um, situations in, in my uh, sort of professional roles. And, you know, a lot of people will talk about uh, things like 
community process, community engagement, uh, sort of understanding context, quote unquote, reading the site, all of these different things. But if you think about story and acknowledge that you are in some form a part of that story, right? <laughs> You're not uh, kind of an, an external um, uh, kind of power force or actor, but that you're actually connected uh, to a place by virtue of your even inhabiting it, uh, thinking about it in, in any form. Uh, and I try to um, do that in my own way. Thank you, Justin. Thank you. I guess the virtuals will go first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the virtuals. <laughs> I got outside of the box today. I was <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a wonderful question. For me, kind of defining myself, um, it took me a long time to kind of come to terms with being a Southerner, right? <laughs> I grew up in North Carolina, but didn't live there. Once I turned 20, I haven't lived there since. And so it's been a really interesting last decade working, returning back to the South and really learning that. I'm the son of Mary Helen Thomas, who was a seamstress and who worked at a uniform rental place, blue-collar worker, the son of a father who was a military, no high school degree, but actually became a sergeant over 30 years and was a medic, and also the progeny, to a certain degree, of my grandmother, who ended up raising me after my mother passed away. And I bring that up with the Southern context because I I continue their story, right? Mm -hmm. And it's interesting as I get older, there is that commitment to continuing that story because I do see, you know, that military disciplinarian in myself. <laughs> I see the, the kind of gentleness of my grandmother and my mother. And then lastly, being the youngest of three, having two older sisters, mm -hmm. I actually see that kind of feminine part of myself emerging at multiple times. So that's my story. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Walter. So, uh, should I go? Yeah, that's a question. Uh, yeah, just uh, briefly wanted to say thank you for being here and appreciate being on the, the podcast with you. Um, I think a, a friend of mine recently said, uh, told me that who we are as individuals are, are the people we surround ourselves with are kind of reflections of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that I thought about that a lot recently in the, in the way that similar to, to all of you, I think, um, you know, my, my family, like my parents are educators. And so of course I mm -hmm. have this love for learning. I like was born in a, raised in a suburb. And so I have this very interesting relationship with the car and, and like, mm -hmm. uh, and everything that goes with that. And, and I think like there's, um, all of you all and, and my, my family here at, at YSA I think is, is a very very much a part of me and who I am and, and then I think I also try and have different communities outside of, of um, the architecture school and, and see myself not try not to be like in one specific box if you will but always try and uh, be the link between two or, or, or always, always try and um, yeah be, be the voice of who else whoever is not represented in, in that world in a way. Definitely noticed that about you. Um, if you wanna. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna ask you a question, Justin, because I've been in your class and I've heard 
your class twice over now because I took it and now I'm a TA and I've heard you say before like stories about your grandfather and his influence on you and I guess I'm just curious like to hear how that storytelling shapes your understanding of yourself, your teachings, your modes of practice, and the ethos of your work. Um, and how does your sense of identity like translate to space, I guess? Yeah, um, and so yeah, for folks that aren't familiar, um, uh, I've done a lot of kind of work um, over the years sort of amplifying what, what I consider to be in, an under-acknowledged kind of story. And so um, my uh, paternal grandfather, uh, so growing up, he, he died when my father was a, a child, actually. So growing up, we would just hear secondhand stories from my uh, uh, grandmother, from uh, my older uh, aunts and uncles about my grandfather. And we were sort of told like, oh, well, he did uh, stuff with like farming and gardening. He was from Tennessee, great migration, moved north. Uh, to, to Indianapolis, and so that was at, at a young age of kind of my superficial um, understanding of it. But uh, as I got older, and you know, sort of navigated toward uh, you know this sort of built environment and urbanism and design-related fields, I uh, started learning more about him, uh, and it was really quite incredible the work that he was doing because he wasn't just like a farmer, he ran a large-scale urban agriculture program in the 1940s in Indianapolis. Um, uh, you know, over 100 acres worth of urban land serving hundreds of families, things like cooperative grocery stores. Uh, it was a really incredible program and my grandfather was the person that sort of designed and um, developed all of these um, uh, projects. and so. It was a really uh, uh, sort of a moment uh, uh, for me to kind of think about all of these things that we didn't learn about the complete American story, right? The complete history. Um, you know, my uh, grandfather, his his father, so my great grandfather was was born in slavery. He was, you know, he wasn't freed until he was twelve or thirteen years old, uh, and so it's sort of you know three generations from slavery, right, and there's this sort of arc of time through the Great Migration, thinking about, you know, their circumstances, but also their abilities, about their resolve, and about the degree of transformation uh, and impact that they were even able to have with such limited resources. Uh, and so, you know, learning that, researching that, I'm very, very lucky that there was a lot of great documentation of his work uh, and that there's still sort of an ongoing legacy and so after a point for me personally it became really important to directly continue to amplify that legacy so I just about nearly every instance I have an opportunity to have an audience I tell the story of that black community in Indianapolis during that time period as a counter narrative to so much of what we're often taught about black people, about space, about cities, about agency, about power, about food, all of these different things that sort of get wiped out in service to a totally different power narrative, right? Which is urban renewal, all these things were done to us, uh, and which are all true, of course, 
but were purposefully not told the other narratives where there was more uh, sort of agency, access, determination, um, you know, sovereignty in some form where people were really shaping their spaces. Uh, and so that uh, group that my grandfather worked with, they, you know, he ran sort of the food uh, uh, access and gardening and nutrition and all those um, components of the work, but that same community, they built uh, housing, self-help housing, where they, they uh, had Hilliard Robinson, black architects, did plans for them, and they uh, uh, designed and, and built their own housing. Uh, and so it's important to kind of hold those uh, uh, pieces of knowledge, those experiences, and to find how they navigate their way into our practices. And so a lot of my uh, uh, more independent work, current work, is finding ways to adapt and translate and hold that as a legacy uh, and continue uh, that work. Um, and uh, you know, been really proud that we've been able to keep that work going and alive. And, and today, uh, back in Indianapolis in the same community, we've been able to revive some of those programs where they've uh, reacquired land, uh, recreated programs providing food access uh, in, in the black community in Indianapolis. But I, I, I you know, there's a, a part of it that's very personal, but a, a, for me, a big part of it is that it's important that it be shared experience and knowledge, right? That more people know um, uh, sort of what people were doing, what their contributions were, um, in, a, in a way that, again, can sort of push and challenge us uh, beyond what are some of the, the dominant narratives uh, that we're sort of given to, to operate and practice with as, as designers and people in the built environment. <clears throat> Thank you, Justin. And it's really interesting because the both of you practice space making and space designing in the way that's different than conventional architecture. And I'm curious to know what attracted you to your larger scales of landscape design, landscape and dis urban design? Um, what freedoms do you now have, or what constraints do you now have that you're no longer doing a quote-unquote building? Is that a question for me? For both of you, all three of you. We'll <laughs> <laughs> let you go first, Walter. <laughs> um, the uh, landscape and urban scale is yeah. something you contribute so much to. No, I think for me, very early, you know, studying architecture. I mean, I wanted to be an architect. I wanted to make buildings. Uh, when I was in high school, that's all I did was draw buildings in college. But after working for a while in a few architectural firms, it seemed like a very privileged position to work on a thing. <laughs> a thing, and sometimes the thing only had two inhabitants. Sometimes the thing had, you know, six, maybe maximum up to, you know, a larger sort of building. And, I always sort of thought that the work should have a larger impact on people. Um, and going back to school for landscape architecture, that's when I started really thinking about how can urban design, landscape, and architecture, how can that be a single kind of way of thinking about the world? And over time, what it's actually done for us is allowed us to kind of not just look at landscape as something that goes around a building, not looking at a building as something that's in a landscape, not looking at buildings and landscapes that make cities, but to just look at a world comprised of all those things. And then when you're faced with certain, how can I say, projects, then you, you do what you need to do. Sometimes you need to make a building. 
Sometimes you need to make a landscape. But what I've come to learn is sometimes you don't need to make a landscape just because someone said you had to make a landscape. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of projects are kind of created, you know, through this kind of disciplinary boundaries. And, you know, sometimes in places, like my neighborhood where I live, we need landscape. All we get is buildings, <laughs> right? right? All we get is more low-income housing, subsidized housing. We need right. landscapes. And there are no projects to make landscapes. And so trying to figure out how to advocate and get people to kind of see, right, that it's not an either-or kind of possibility, but it can be a both end. And that somehow beginning to weave together and cross some of these disciplinary boundaries might allow for other people to kind of see, you know, where that need needs to be. Yeah, I love I love that statement. We need landscapes. How do I find a T-shirt that says that? Um, it, yeah, it, it, it's interesting. So I, I also started out very solidly in, in architecture. In fact, I, I had my first job in an architecture firm when I was 14 years old. Uh, so I started really, really early uh, in, in architecture with the building design focus. But something that I, I think occurred over the course of my Education and some of this has to do with you know the particular kind of path and, and uh, set of experience in my education is I, I did start to uh, from a pretty early age recognize that there was so much more to my interest beyond only building design. Uh, it was uh, uh, some of you probably know Mabel Wilson, so kind of midway through. Uh, undergrad, um, uh, the Paul Carriot, which was uh, who Mabel Wilson was sort of partnered with, uh, with a firm at, at that point, were working together on some of their work on sites and memory and, and kind of broadening uh, different modes of, of expression. And Mabel came and, and lectured at, at, at UF, University of Florida, where I went to undergrad. And, you know, she was introducing bell hooks and, you know, just she was really blowing our minds, uh, frankly, in terms of what were we even talking about, uh, sort of when we talk about space and power and sort of different approaches. And so, um, you know, I, I remember um, that year I was in that studio, I, I actually ended up doing a, a project around uh, Confederate monuments in Savannah. <laughs> so, like, I'm in architecture school, and UF is kind of a, a relatively, like, architecture architecture school, uh, but I was talking about, you know, public space and uh, the history of Confederate monuments when I'm in, like, I don't know, it was probably 19 or 20 at the time, right? And so there is this kind of early interest in the full landscape, uh, the full set of our experiences um, that, that we're shaping. Um, uh, my personal interest in design and practice and, you know, what did I want to spend my time thinking about and doing, right? Uh, school is very hard. You spend a lot of time and hours. You, you should care about it and like it. And so, um, you know, it wasn't, uh, uh, I, I think, for me, the, the sort of split between kind of urban design and architecture was something I navigated for a long time. Um, so, in, in fact, when I went to graduate school, I did both an architecture degree and an urban design degree. I did both because I, I just was so um, uh, uh, sort of split between 
kind of the interest and, and power of both. And I realized sort of later in my education when I started going into professional practice that ultimately I was interested, frankly, in the, the, the power to shift how people were living, um, the, you know, the agency they could find in different roles. And to be perfectly honest, the reason I went into more of the urban and public practice side is because the way that architecture as a discipline is largely set up is really structured for people that already have agency and power to have the most impact, right? If you go into a firm, very quickly the dynamics become who can get certain types of projects, connect with different types of clients, and, and that's where you get uh, sort of agency. And it's very difficult, you know, I, I no trust fund, right? No <laughs> you know, certain types of connections and things like that. And so um, while I love architecture and design, I saw my path in public service being something that would be a fruitful experience in exchange for me, right? That I was able to kind of build um, agency to have impact. Um, and I'm very lucky that I had, I always had great um, women bosses who would, you know, put, put me in the room, put me in the position where I could have some, uh, say, influence. And I sort of got addicted to alternate from traditional architecture practices. That said, I consider all of these practices, uh, you know, to Walter's point, right, multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary, right? You're always working with all of your design skills and tools in these different forms of practice. And it's a matter of sort of translating and finding where uh, impact can happen. So, um, you know, while, you know, I'm not, registered and AIA and all of that, I still absolutely claim architects because I've designed buildings, I've shaped spaces, I've had that kind of impact um, on the world, um, but through multiple modes of, of practice and, and thought. And I include you, Josh, in that question. I don't think you approach design in a conventional way as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting question, right? Because I think I'm still, you know, still architecture school and I'm still, like, learning a lot of things of, like, one heroic move of a building. And, and I think that's why I look up to a lot of your guys' work because it, it really dissolves what, um, what space is in a way that is more inclusive. And I think it is a way that we need to start thinking about systems and, like, ecological systems and, and like, all these stories that I think we're talking about um, to, to think that one building can like, oh, put it there on the side and it's solved, like it's, it's ridiculous and then like kind of needs to be faded out and, and I think thinking in the lens of, um, yeah, all, all of the stories of, of histories of, of us as individuals, as people, as a community, but then like from an ecosystem's perspective, like mm -hmm. what are the migrations, what are the larger ecological corridors that we need to keep in mind mm -hmm. that need uh, that need help because no one's really speaking for them as well. And so I think there's a lot of, um, I think there's a lot of ways that architects, architecture can supplement um, all of the work that is going on in, on a landscape and in an urban perspective. And it, it can't just come from one. It, it needs to. Someone need, I think always needs to ask like, what if it's not a building? Like Walter said, what if it's what if it's something else? Uh, thanks, Jeff. Yeah. So. Uh, I have another question. I want to ask Walter a question about value. Um, I was listening to a lot of your lectures and you had 
referred to um, Du Bois' Souls of Black Folks, and I'm actually, I was already reading that, so I thought it kind of jumped out at me when you were talking about, like, the unique condition of Tunis that Black people experience, that we're navigating the world, understanding ourselves as soul peoples, as important, just inherently important on the human spiritual level. But we're also living in a white world where you're having to explain your value and it's inherently never going to get understood because of the racial constructions that we live under. So I guess it's kind of like a bizarre axiological ground to tip around like, am I important? Am I not important? And now you have all these spaces like telling you you're I'm not important and making your experiences not important. And I wonder like, how did that play a role in your understanding of yourself, your practice? Does that make its way into your teachings? Because it was in two lectures that I watched of yours. Um, um, it's a very, you know, good salient question. <laughs> uh, you know, in thinking about, you know, two-ness and double consciousness in Du Bois's writings, you know, very early, you know, I'm trying to remember, I don't think in high school we had to read divorce. I mean, I didn't read divorce until I got to undergraduate. I went to an HBCU in, uh, in Greensboro. So that's the first time I actually became aware of the terminology, but it made once I learned about it, it made me think about all the things that I was told growing up. Right, like my father would always say, you know, you have to do things twice or three times better than the next person. Right, it was always this kind of ethic that what he was telling me was the veil, <laughs> and and he didn't come out and say it, but he was just saying anything you do out there, people are going to judge you by what you look like first. And so therefore, you have to always go beyond. And that was just one of these values that was instilled in us at a very young age. And then when I started to read places, sort of accounts of the double consciousness, it actually gave me a more power, actually, right? To be more emboldened to kind of think about when I walk into a room, can I actually get that control back? <laughs> and, you know, when I was at Berkeley, uh, in architecture school, there was four African Americans in the entire program. Mm -hmm. One of them was undergraduate, and three of us was graduate. Mm -hmm. And it was just interesting at the time what those experiences were like. I could not get one bad crit. Mm -hmm. Right? It was always nice drawings. And I'm like, fuck, no, tell me the truth about your work. Mm -hmm. And everyone always skated around this issue. And I had to like really go to a professor and just say, look, <laughs> you know, I know I'm black, but you can be frank with me <laughs> about the work. Mm -hmm. And cultivating that kind of conversation, again, gave me more courage within the context when I felt that I was being subjected to, what can I say, um, a lower standard than I wanted. I actually spoke up. <laughs> And sometimes it put people off, but I didn't care at that point. And when people were dismissive, I just let them go. And I have one little anecdote. I had a review while I was in graduate school, and I chose to not do the slated project. And I remember the review. When my work was on the wall, the reviewers got to me, and they said, what is this, this guy's doing? And, they, and the teacher told them that, oh, he wanted to do his own work. And they got up, and they didn't even review me and moved to the next group, right? And I clapped, 
and I said, thank you, and I left the review. But that was probably the moment where I was most empowered, right? Because again, it, it allowed me not to sort of always depend on that outside defining me. And that at a certain point, I just got to that line where I'm defining myself. Mm -hmm. right? I'm not going to let others do that. And I think, you know, every, I think in America, people of color, gender, I think everyone gets to that line <laughs> where, you know, either you cross it or you, or you stay back, right? And this idea of being in control of the veil, to me, can be a very powerful thing. Very powerful. But then I'd follow up that thought um, with the question, how do you design for communities that aren't your own? How do you approach histories that you're not a part of? Um, thinking about your Latinx-based heritage trail in Wilmington, and also a question for you, Justin, designing in cities that you did not grow up in, and also for you, <laughs> Josh, being on the East Coast and being part of many identities. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll, go ahead, I'll, I was going to say, I'll, I'll answer sort of quickly from, uh, you know, I've worked for such a long time in, in the, the public sector, and I think that there's a, a really important conversations, a conversation around kind of roles and the, the ethics of, of one's practice and sort of understanding your position. So, I, you know, at the, you know, the first round of questions, I was talking about being um, true about your role when you're in those situations, right? So a community that's not yours um, or that you're not familiar with or that you're not considered part of, but if you're still in whatever reason or role um, put into a situation where you're a part of a potential change in that community, you have to be really conscious about that role and that work. And so, uh, you know, I was fortunate in the public sector because in theory, you work for everyone, mm -hmm. right? Like you're not working for a particular client that's commissioned you to do the work, so it's very different from someone that's like a, an architect or designer that, that is um, sort of contracted to do work. And so there we had a lot of um, conversations about um, learning kind of process, like finding ways to invest time and energy and kind of learning about a place before action. Um, you know, sometimes it's done in a very, it's almost like McKinsey or Accenture way kind of community engagement process that gets engineered and, and frankly pretty forced. But the, the more that you think about it as a relationship that you're engaging in, um, developing, you know, building trust, uh, taking the time to uh, have more understanding and listening, uh, but also translating work, right? So there are things that you may not understand and you may need to go through that process of, of having ideas and, and responses translating so that you can at least um, directly communicate with people and, and to have um, sort of a more uh, two-way interaction when, when working in, in communities that aren't your own. Um, but it's, it's challenging. I, I fully acknowledge that, you know, in, in a sort of a public sector role, right, you have a, a totally different position than if you're sort of representing a client and, and it's a totally different dynamic.
Thank you, Justin. Um, if I could just add on uh, what Walter was talking about in terms of, I think, uh, and what you're bringing up, Sydney, this idea of double consciousness and Dubois, I think I, I um, since I'm biracial, I grew up kind of code switching in a lot of different situations and institutions. And I think um, it's kind of made the way that I listen uh, in a very particular way. I think um, kind of, I take usually a long time to process what's going on in a room and understand the, the, the ways that people are talking to each other and like the body languages. And I think it allows me to, I don't know, sometimes I claim it as like a superpower in a way that I can kind of be in different rooms and different voices and like kind of shock people at how like I will, um, you know, will not be what they expect because I can kind of live in two different worlds at the same time in a way. And I think, um, I think in, in doing so, I think I've learned a lot about listening. And, and I think that's, in, I think in designing for communities that aren't like ourselves, I think there's a lot that I can pull from my experience individually to, to purely listen and, and like whether that's, um, yeah, in the way, way that I kind of act as an architect or just like act as a community member. Oh, I mean, what Josh was saying is just really important. I mean, I think listening is, is, is a superpower. It's really hard to listen, um, you know, particularly as designers because we're always <laughs> want to give, right? We want to like give our, we want to do our thing. But listening is an art, you know? And, you know, I love when we work on projects where I'm not familiar, I just love being quiet. You know, people think when you're like, well, just gonna say something, I'm just like, I just love being quiet. And being quiet allows you, again, to, I think to hear just different voices, it's not, that's more of a metaphor, right? Like you have to sort of, once you get to that state, you'll actually start to hear different things from different people in different places. And so this project you talked about in Wilmington, we were having meetings in Wilmington, LA, um, and what I kept hearing from people is that there was no natural material in a park that was just made. They kept saying, we don't have any grass, <laughs> right? Because it's artificial turf. I mean, everything, concrete, artificial turf, red lights, you know, just nothing. And so we did a little history and we found out that where the port of LA was and where the early Latin Latino community was, the term greasers originated there. And that's where the guys would get off work and they would go work on their cars, right? So we would have this conversation and they, they talked about a lot of limestone and the beach, right? And so doing the history, we found out that, sure enough, most of that was removed, the limestone was removed. And so we found a quarry nearby, we quarried limestone and we just built these limestone towers. And we sprinkled water on top of them. And as soon as we opened the thing, kids just came out of nowhere, right? And this notion of just touching rock, <laughs> it kind of blew my mind that that could have such a powerful place in a, in a community, but if you go through the community, there's nothing inert, right? And we kind of forget those things. I can't see you guys' expressions. So we're, really <laughs> we're, we're smiling. We're just digesting. We're, we're listening. listening. We're, we're listening. listening. <laughs> we're doing the work. <laughs> um, and, and it just reminds me of sort of playing with like kind of, you know, there are a lot of assumptions that, that we bring into 
our practices and, and experiences. And so, you know, taking the time to kind of hear what's important to people, to learn from that, to honor it, to figure out how to honor it um, in, in a way that, that relates and resonates is, is something that it, it takes time. And, uh, absolutely, Walter's point, like it, 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 it's hard sometimes to not jump in like, okay, I'm here to solve a problem. And it's, it's like so much, again, of our practices designed around that in theory, you're the person that can solve the problem, right? That's what, <laughs> why you're, you're um, brought in to participate. But there, there really is a lot that we don't know and have to unlearn, actually. Um, and, and sort of a bridge point to, to kind of the double consciousness conversation, we've had a lot of um, thinking in the past year, going on year and a half. Um, well, uh, Mabel Wilson, or I've been others, and Frank is unlearning um, uh, whiteness. Mm -hmm. And the, the kind of the amount of energy and effort that's put into bail, um, uh, and into um, uh, kind of yeah, where where do we spend our, our energy? Uh, can can be pushed and challenged, and perhaps some of like those conversations that Walter is having when he goes to a community. Maybe we should put a lot more of our energy in learning how to do that well, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, because I, I think more and more as the world. Um, world slash communities or nation your state whatever your city whatever your frame of, of practice will be that that uh, the multiple and the multitude is our greatest responsibility uh, for practice right as opposed to uh, what for a very long time was some kind of dominant um, figure right a, a dominant subject and that is being challenged in every possible facet and in multiple ways from environment and climate to uh, heritage and culture to uh, economic and social frames, right? In every possible way it is being challenged. And we, we don't have a lot of good tools and frames for that. So there's some unlearning that we have to sort of collectively do and invest in uh, to, to approach work, I think, in a, in a more productive uh, and uh, fruitful way that, that reaches some of the outcomes that, that we think all seek in some form or another. Yeah, and, and, it, and it really does, Justin, it may be, reminded me of a project we're working on in Arlington, Virginia, which is uh, Green Valley Knock. And the discussion we were having with the community was around this idea of freedom. Right? Mm -hmm. And I was hired to help them tell the story of the diaspora of the first Freedmen's Village that was at Arlington Cemetery that then became part of this larger landscape, which is Green Valley. And as I was doing the research, I kept coming across this idea of free men, free women, right? I mean, this idea of free, F-R-E-E-D. And so I put this out to the community. I was like, we should erect something that says free, F-R-E-E-D, and not free. And man, you know, my client was like, you can't do that, you know, that's not a good thing to do. I did it anyway, <laughs> we had a great conversation. I mean, it was an amazing conversation, the difference between one being let go, right? Or actually mm -hmm. 
on your own going, right? And this notion of that psychosis that might still exist today, right? That someone might call us back, <laughs> right? But just having that conversation with the community. And I just remember one uh, soldier, a guy who was a veteran, stood up and said, I fought in the Iraq war, African-Americans, I fought in the Iraq war, and I fought for freedom, right? And there was this amazing conversation and people got up and said no but free talks about this and just being able to like engage like that you know and i was afraid i'll tell you i was not like i was like i didn't know what was going to happen and at the end of the day we're now going to erect a 40-foot statue gilded that will say freed in the middle of the space and it's it's just been an interesting you know time having that conversation but again every time we move through projects like that. It just gives us courage for the next project. Okay. That courage to actually try to put something out there that will force us, meaning black folk, to actually take charge of our story in a better way, in a more powerful way. And it's not always a romantic story. <laughs> right? <laughs> so sometimes, right, we gotta deal with you know, those things that cut. That's actually good timing for my question. It's like very related to what you're talking about. I'm, I'm curious to know how you deal with people that were brutalized, are descendants of people who were brutalized, and honor their pain, honor their experiences without reenacting that violence that they've been under. Because that's a lot of responsibility that we're all kind of grappling with, even in school, like ideas of how to deal with people. Well, I'll go first. I mean, for me, I, I think we need a lot of ways to deal with it. I don't think it should be seen. I think we, we do need sometimes to shock ourselves. We do need sometimes to, to heal ourselves with the trauma. We do need to forget some things, remember others, but I think all of these, and while we were working on the International African American Museum, we did a two-day tour of plantations, Gullah Geechee landscapes, uh, we went to Sullivan's Island to see you know, a small little installation that talked about slavery, and then we ended at Mother Emanuel Church, and this was a year after the massacre. And the power of the healing and the forgiveness that came, you know, from from the church as it related to where we began at the at the plantation almost encapsulated how we wanted to actually talk about that trauma, talk about that pain. So there are places going to be in the landscape and building where you might cry, and there are going to be other places where you might dance. And in a way, that's our experience, right? We carry around that pain with us, but we also carry around that joy. And I think that's what we, I think that's what we can give to the rest of the citizens in this country. We're only able to deal with these things kind of separately, right? But we have this ability from our experience to actually be celebratory even though we're in pain. And it reminded me of Jimmy Baldwin who's in San Francisco in 63. And they, someone was interviewing him, and he was looking across the street, and he saw a couple and three guys. And the guy was like, what do you see? And that's what Baldwin said. He goes, 
I see pain, but I also see joy, right? And this this idea, and it always makes me think about funerals. You know, there's always the wake, <laughs> right? So there's the somber time, but then there's the celebration. And so through the work, we're constantly trying to make sure that you know, if we bring you down, we're going to lift you up. If we lift you up, we're going to bring you down. I mean, you got to have that, right? And I think. It's healthy to begin to kind of think about creating spaces that could imbue those kinds of things. And yeah, I, I completely agree there. And I, you know, my new, relatively new role at, at the Mellon Foundation, where we're working on the Monuments Project, which is this sort of big, uh, major campaign uh, around this question exactly of, of what is our. Uh, kind of public landscape, public experience, kind of how power is built into our landscapes around our collective memories uh, and our collective uh, sort of narratives that, that are made present in public. And uh, this question of, of you know, what, what do we remember? Uh, uh, Monument Lab recently uh, completed an, an audit of the National Commemorative Landscape, and the, the large majority of our commemorative landscape is about war, right? Um, and then, uh, you know, this idea of kind of like the, the singular story or the simplified story uh, is another um, uh, kind of prompt to, to deal with, right? So if you were to take African-American history in America, for example, you would think that Martin Luther King, Sojourner Truth, and Harriet Tubman were the only black people <laughs> oh, in Frederick Douglass, you know, that ever did anything. Right? In the entire like history uh, of America, because when you look at the landscape of who is valued, right there, again, there are these dominant narratives, right? The entire civil rights movement turns into Martin Luther King. That is a myth, right? And, it, and it's, a, it's an intentional and constructed myth. Right, that that particular brand of work, mm -hmm. of, of narrative, is, is what needs to be remembered and, and honored. Right, and so there are actually many different types of violence and harm and brutality that we have to, to think about, right? And some of it is through erasure, some of it is through like actual violence, uh, some of it is through um, uh, very strange psychological uh, things that have happened, right? The uh, uh, urban rural era and all, all of those sorts of things that, that have affected and continue to affect people. And so, absolutely to Walter's point, like acknowledging that complexity of reaction and response from memory, from uh, pain to joy to allowing space for a completely different experience and present and future sometimes may be what is, is actually needed um, in, in different spaces. And so, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's something that we're all sort of navigating, but I think the, the base understanding that I think a lot of people are trying to build is that, that complexity the multitude, right, the multiple experiences uh, are really important to acknowledge when doing this work in that it's not a singular or reactive response, right? Uh, a case in point example I have is uh, here in, in New York City uh, during the whole monument 
conversation. There's a huge monument at Columbus Circle to Christopher Columbus, uh, erected at some point in history when Italian-Americans were at a different position in, in society, and it was sort of a thing to honor their heritage and culture. Uh, and then there, of course, were a lot of conversations about what Columbus did across history in a kind of an amplified way, um, and that Columbus should come down. Um, and one of, the, one of the responses at one point was like, it should come down and you should have a monument to indigenous uh, Lenape, Lenape peoples. And so there was this education process that happened Well, when you actually talk to people that were connected to the, the Lenape community, they're like, well, one, we don't do statues. <laughs> so we don't want a statue, actually. We want our land back. <laughs> right? So there's this whole like kind of training that people were investing in that was the absolutely wrong conversation. Yeah. Right? And the people, and actually most of the people who were campaigning against it coming down were not like, you know, New York region indigenous people like from Lenape Muncie. It was the Taino people who, if you know the New York demographics and the diaspora, there are a lot of people sort of descended from people like Columbus directly <laughs> negatively infected, uh, affected that, and infected, that are um, in New York. And so that was where a lot of the, the anti-Columbus responses come from. So you have to like understand these complexities to even know what the response should be, yeah. right? So I think that's what a lot of people are, are kind of working on and, and thinking about how do we engage that and and to um, you know for those of us that are in the design world like we we do have some uh, uh, modes of thinking about experience and thinking about program thinking about environment and interaction in ways that hopefully help us to kind of collectively uh, address this. Josh, do you want to engage this question? Um, sure. I guess just briefly, I think. Um, I think I love the ideas of, of memory that were going on. And Walter, I think that your story kind of made me think of the flip side of memory as like action in a way. And then I think that I, the most powerful memorials um, are those that agitate to a point that changes, change occurs through direct action. And then I think like, I love that just like putting up freed instead of freedom. It, like it's because it's going to make people uncomfortable and because it's going to, um, make that space for that conversation to happen. I, I think we have to think about the resulting, hopefully positive actions that will result from that. And so we have a hundred questions you want to ask, but we want to open the floor up um, to you all. If anybody wants to ask a question, please feel free and comfortable to engage. There's people there, I promise. <laughs> 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 uh, not all at once. Yes. Yes. Happily, clear. Should I just yell? You, you can, can come, come up here. You can yeah. yell. Public storytelling that, like, so since Sydney has like opened up space for, and a lot of the work that everyone has talked about is also public. It's in the it's in the built environment. It's 
talk in the world. And I'm wondering if any of you have like private storytelling rituals that you need to do to sustain the work that you then go out and do publicly every day. Like whether that's with um, like friends and family or through like language or like private writing. Um, just things that happen like on a smaller scale but that you need to like sustain and nurture your work. Thank you, Claire. You might have to restate the question. I couldn't hear it. Yeah, I know you heard about uh, doing work in public and, and smaller scales, but what if you repeat? This is the mic. <laughs> <laughs> Can you hear this? A little better, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My question is if you have private storytelling rituals that sustain your public ones, things that you do in your like in, in your private lives, in your personal lives, uh, that are uh, like necessary to like rejuvenate you to go out in the world and do the public storytelling work you do through your design and advocacy. Could you hear that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank yeah, you, so I, um, uh, <laughs> I, I love our parks, and so for me, I, you know, I, I live in New York City and Harlem, one of the reasons I love Harlem is that you've got Morningside Park, Marcus Garvey Park, Central Park, St. Nicholas Park, uh, all in close proximity, and for me, um, uh, it's really important to take time, and I just go for different walks um, and it's it's time to yourself but it's it's in a strange way it's still time like together yeah. um, and it's it's another kind of double uh, consciousness in a way like being being by yourself and together at the same time um, and I just you know observe it's like a different form of listening right so Walter's like okay you're in a meeting and you're listening there's also just going through the world like in background listening slash experiencing and it, it really does help me um, stay grounded to a degree um, but also to, to have sort of space where it's not responsible to everybody I can still just be kind of responsible to myself uh, at the same time and more on kind of the professional level um, uh, you know for the products that are here in New York I, I often go to like the things that I've worked on and just see if this work out or not. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you know, I will say that most of the time they, they have worked out, but you know, sometimes they don't. But, and it's important to kind of know when, when something didn't work or it failed um, as well. Uh, for many different reasons, things can, can fail so that you can sort of consider it in the future. But that, that's my go-to, like being alone together is how I would put it. It's funny you say that, Justin. I mean, teaching and running an office, you know, by the time I get to the weekend, I just shut it down. Like, <laughs> everything just gets shut down. No cell phone, I'm trying, no cell phone meetings, you know, no, you know, just shut it down because what happens actually is this kind of accumulation happens. I mean, when I'm talking to my students, I'm getting, you know, turned on by this stuff. When I go to the office, there's this, and it's all of this information. And to me, I have to just like have one day, and it's normally Saturdays where I just show up. I don't have to talk to anyone, nothing. And it's just like, what happened to Walter? Just disappeared for 24 hours. 
but, but that's a, a way for me to mentally just kind of collect my thoughts from the days that occurred. It blows my mind what I'm able then to pull out and then begin to sort of use creatively and pedagogically. Are there any other questions? <laughs> you got to get it like a step stool. Can you hear this? Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Justin, you mentioned um, sort of how community engagement can sometimes go awry or. <laughs> not reach the level you'd want it to. And you both do such a great job in your work to, to do a broad-based community engagement and collaboration. I guess um, what I'm curious is if you have any thoughts on how we can move beyond sort of collecting stories from multiple perspectives to uh, a more collaborative like group story or, or how landscapes can bring together multiple people's stories. Thank you. Yeah, I think I have sort of two very different responses to that. So one is that I think the entire um, AEC industry has to change um, <laughs> kind of what it will pay for and their, you know, and the, the clients, right? So it would, it, there would have to be a conversation where a client would have to say this is an important part of the process to get a good outcome and would have to resource that process. And it, it doesn't happen. There are some firms that, you know, as a matter of their practice, they'll, they'll do it. Um, but it's, it, even those that are doing it well are incredibly under-resourced to do it, right? Um, and so that's like a bigger picture thing that needs to happen in the, the industry. And I think the place to start would be with public projects, with government or, you know, something that, uh, can sort of set a new norm um, uh, with essentially requiring uh, a greater level of, of participation and power for projects that are impacting communities. So, you know, in, in your uh, sort of fees and bids and, and all of that, there would be a, a big chunk of resource, right, which I mean, money is the shorthand for it, but the money is really a symbol for staffing it with people with experience and who reflect the communities or maybe even be directly from communities being compensated for their time and knowledge and experience, right, as a part of the expertise that is needed to do a project that changes a place, right? That should be a norm and not something that happens as a weird exception because some foundation did something or because some practitioner has jerry-rigged their, their fee schedules for things like that to happen, mm. right? It, it shouldn't be strange that this is even a thing. Mm -hmm. So that, that's one kind of thing that is a difficult thing that, that needs to be figured out. The second piece is, is what, you know, conversations like this hopefully and hopefully work happening uh, kind of at your school but also within the industry to actually help people understand that this is a skill and experience and awareness that, that needs to be had and needs to be invested in in terms of our learning 
in terms of our kind of interactions and things that, that we uh, know how to do well. Uh, it, it's, again, not being sort of a niche thing. And so that's a, a big question because, you know, school takes a certain amount of time when you're in the professional world and you have your kind of credentials and licensure and continuing education, right? There's a whole ecosystem uh, that, that frames how people practice uh, that are in tension with laws, right? So codes and requirements by states and, and other things, but also um, uh, kind of professional ethics that are governed in some form or another about practice by uh, the association and crediting boards, et cetera, et cetera. So there needs to be a lot of, I think, realignment there. Um, I professionally am, am, am considered a, a planner uh, AICP, and so we just had a recent process around our um, revision of our code of ethics for thinking about things like uh, social justice, social equity, uh, anti-racism, etc. Um, and actually going back and looking at what are our professional requirements, so continuing education around these issues, but also things like in leadership, right, so with all the planning directors saying there needed to be public and direct acknowledgement for the harm done by the profession, right, in, in a way that is directly stated so that you could create a different environment um, for, you know, what's the standard of, of responsibility for someone practicing, right? So I think there's sort of two um, dimensions. One is really, frankly, on the money and the contract, like contract side, like make it required by contract. On the other side, it could be required by kind of ethics and law and code that there could be a more robust process. Otherwise, it will just be random uh, circumstances uh, out of the goodness of somebody's heart or somebody's personal convictions that it happens, and that's not going to that's not going to happen in scale. I don't know, Walter. I have other <laughs> he's had to do it in practice. Well, I, I, um, you know, I have this strange relationship with participatory, you know, planning and process because, you know, and sometimes, you know, we find that in places that have the least amount of investment, it's much more democratized. <laughs> the place that have more investment is least democratized, right? Right. They so sometimes I think what ends up happening is all the money goes for process and not for product. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the things we've been trying to challenge. You know, if you're going to have process, that means you're going to have, have to have more product. Yeah. It's really sad to see in a lot of these projects that have two years of planning, nothing happens like, mm -hmm. in a lot of places where in a lot of these places, we know what should happen. <laughs> so it's not as if we're waiting for people to tell us. And so. You know, we try in every project to create a different process. And I think if, and I don't know how you mandate that, I think that's a set of values that maybe can start at the academy, but this notion that we should have a curiosity about people in a place, right? And through that curiosity, that should create a process, a process for sharing, right? A process for understanding, a process for knowing. And that process could be almost anything. Like we've taken people on bus rides, we've gone on walks, right? We've had dinners, right? We didn't have like 50 meetings. Like I have a project now that has 
four meetings per week. Oh. We've been doing it for three months. Mm-hmm. You can imagine how many. Wow. <laughs> no planning fatigue. Yeah. yeah. And at a certain point, you're kind of like, why are we doing this, right? We're only making this blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I can tell you what those components are going to be. And probably the only thing people can tell you is what color they want, right? <laughs> because it's already laid out. And so, again, finding ways in which to engage. And you know, we use language a lot to try to engage you know, differently in places. But just to try to steer people in a different way so it doesn't feel like, oh, here they come again, right? Because there's a lot of, there's not a lot of trust out there for communities. And it's like, oh, they're coming again, they're not going to do it. So we have to come in there and actually change the paradigm to a yeah, and I definitely undermine your, your first point about just where the, the actual resources are, because exactly a lot of people get planned to death, and there and there's no actual resources coming in, right, um, to, to actually build anything, to actually transform things, and the, the really important point is to maintain something that is promised. There's, even if something gets built kind of in the political dynamics and all of that, are you resourcing it for people to keep but, but they're given, right? Or what they earned, right? Uh, and that, that's another huge dynamic that is sort of a, an inequality engine in, in most cities is that, that huge resource gap. A really important point. We talk about economics, but I don't know about just the planning projects pay them as money. <laughs> right? When you look at those planning contracts, yeah, yeah. you look at the architectural fees, <laughs> you know, those planning projects. So it's almost like it's kind of a weird thing, you know, and it's like in some projects, you know, we don't even want to do them because you look at the amount of money they're paying to plan something in the neighborhood. I would rather give it to that neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. It's like you take this money because take the money. Yeah. So wow. yeah, follow the money. Shift <laughs> <laughs> something. Wow. Thank you so much, Walter and Justin and Josh. And we have so many more questions we would love to ask. And with that, please come to Yale in person and <laughs> teach them. Um, and thank you, I audience. Miss the orange carpet. I the orange carpet. <laughs> um, and thank you, audience, so much for your time and for engaging with these questions that we're interested in. And stories are important. Josh, I don't know if you have anything you want to say. No, just thank you all for coming, and I think like it's a great format, and I think these stories, conversations, and, and I hope that they kind of continue and exist without like within the walls, but also kind of without, yeah. around, and yeah. yeah. And then Sydney. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Right, thank you. Always thank you, sir. Always yeah. great to, to be in conversation. We, we you know. Um, check out uh, at the Nong Foundation recently funded a great project Walter worked on uh, for the um, August Wilson House, uh, which is you know okay, about really yeah. yeah really important kind of story. Speaking of stories and landscape and how design uh, can do that, it's a great project to check out. So uh, look look for it uh, soon. No, and there's uh, the other one there. Curtain Call, which was another one, a collection of images from people in the hill was going to bookend it. So that's back wow. up again. So yeah. hopefully there will be some storytelling in the hill district. Good yeah, check that out. Good story. Thanks a lot, Justin, for wow. the
for listening and we hope you enjoyed episode two.